Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Joining us today is Stephanie Slage, managing editor of Reason Magazine, and wrote a cover story for a recent issue on nationalism. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thanks so much for having me. Isn't a nationalist just a patriot, just someone who loves their country? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, that, that, of course, is the sort of disagreement that many people in this country and around the world, and especially on the sort of political right, are having right now. What is nationalism? You know, what is a nationalist? Isn't it just patriotism? Um, some people, including some high-profile people, foremost among them, National Review editor Rich Lowry, have argued, "Yeah, it's just not. It's nationalism is just patriotism. It just means that you're proud of your country. You love your country. You know, what could be wrong with that?" Um, I think that that is that 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 is not a helpful way to go about, you know, understanding these words to, is to conflate two concepts that have very different connotations. And one of which I think almost everybody knows what patriotism means instinctively. We have a sort of shared understanding of that. It's very positive, overwhelmingly positive connotations. Not so with nationalism. And so I don't think introducing that sort of conflation is very helpful. So how does Rich Lowry in particular, because he seems to talk about the importance of borders and the importance of having nations and almost compare it to some sort of borderless cosmopolitan world. Is is that kind of what his nationalism is? That's part of it. Yeah. And, and um, you know, of course, there's a lot of disagreement about what goes into like I said, what goes into this word and, and what goes into this movement or this idea of nationalism. And um, his is is a less fleshed out policy program. So he spends a lot less time in, in his recent book on this subject talking about exactly what he thinks needs, you know, what policy program needs to be associated with nationalism. Um, and he spends a lot more time talking about how we should be proud of our country and we should, you know, want to maintain our sort of cultural... Um, homogeneity and, and a sort of sense of unity among the people. And, um, and basically, yeah, he wants, he wants control over, over our borders and thinks that nation states are a good thing, all of which I think is fairly defensible. Um, but the, I have a couple of problems with that, one of which is that he, he, he continuously, even in the course of his book, and his is like, I think, the most defensible version of nationalism, he continuously slides into some dangerous and kind of icky territory talking about keeping foreigners out because they don't come from the sort of same um, cultural stock that we do as Americans. Um, And also the vast majority of the other conservative nationalists out there have a much more aggressive policy agenda that they are hanging on this word. You mentioned the two two of the motivating factors behind or attitudes behind this contemporary nationalism is – is that it's it's good to have like pride in your country and it's good to have these shared a shared culture and people who aren't part of this country are going to undermine both potentially and those strike me as interesting claims for someone to for someone to hold in the sense that first like do people like Lowry and other nationalists genuinely imagine that like most Americans aren't proud of their country um, or dislike America is, I guess, as I'll ask that question first, because that just, it seems that just seemed to be like, we, there's this, you hear it from the right a lot, but like that, you know, we just, we don't like America anymore. We all, that we hate, not the right does, they think like the left hates America, the left, Obama went around apologizing for America and so on. But that just doesn't seem to be borne out by 
experience. Like I don't, I don't imagine Americans are less into America than they used to be. They might be less into their government than they used to be. But that's yeah, I wish they were right? less into their government than I think they probably <laughs> are. Um, uh, I, I want to be fair to Lowry um, and say I think he identifies two sort of phenomena that aren't, I mean, he's not imagining them. He's not making them up. One of which is a sort of um, sense that among our elite institutions, and especially like on college campuses, at prestigious universities, among the academia, among among the sort of cultural elite on the left, there is a sort of preoccupation with identity politics and with, um, tr- they. I think he would say, trying to rewrite our history in order to cast us, America, as a sort of villain, right? This is this is a, a major theme that has animated the opposition to the New York Times um, 1619 project, right? Is the idea that they're trying to rewrite our history and, ma- and make us a, a sort of irredeemable villain in our own tale. Um, I think that identity politics and a sort of desire to rewrite history and a, maybe a sort of loss of perspective on um, on the on that history is not a thing that they're imagining. People like Rich Lowry, I don't think they're imagining that. I think it may be they're maybe blowing that out of proportion, so they too have lost perspective a little bit. But um, but I don't think that that it's, I don't want to start this conversation by saying that he's like just completely um, fabricating the problem that he's responding to. And the other one, as sort of the other end, would be I, I describe in my article. He sees um, threats to America from without and within. So that would be the threat from within our elite cultural in- institutions um, sowing discord. And then the threat from without, he would say, I think, is the um, the sort of move towards supranational governing institutions like the EU and the UN and the International Criminal Court. And he thinks that it's not a good thing for us to be moving the locus of government governing power farther and farther away from the people, which I agree with, actually. I just don't know why he would want to stop it bringing it back to the national level. We could bring it back much closer than that. Well, and that that kind of brings up the other the other question, which is the cultural side of things, because there's this strong sense among nationalists that there is there is or there ought to be a shared American identity, and that that identity either isn't as strong as it could be or is fraying, and that one of the reasons it's fraying is because of either this loss of sovereignty to supranational uh, governing organizations or just an influx of people who aren't part of our pre-existing culture and so are bringing their own cultural values, which then lead to a diminishing of whatever this shared identity is. But but again, this seems this seems like a weird claim coming from the people who it's coming from, who tend to be – so it tends to be social conservatives and we know that social conservatism – of of the kind that is often articulated on the right is a minority position within the United States. Um, and, and so what I wonder is how much is the modern nationalist wave really just like a way for people whose cultural preferences aren't terribly popular to imagine themselves as the true bearers of American identity? Yeah, I think that's I think that that's part of where this argument breaks down, actually, because um, again, there's always a sort of kernel of truth, or there often is a kernel of truth that these arguments are built upon. I think it's absolutely the case, and I, I don't disagree with Lowry and and his, his sort of compatriots at all um, when he says things like we have a unique um, national identity or a unique national culture culture in America, and that is um, important and valuable, and it and we ought not to want. You know, we, we ought not to downplay the importance of that. I think that's all true. Um, but I would say like, well, if you were going to try to describe what it is that makes our American culture unique and, and, and exceptional even, um, historically, 
what has that meant? Well, it's it's been our our commitment as a people to openness and pluralism, our commitment to limited government and personal responsibility, our adventurousness, our entrepreneurialism. Um, it's it's our individual liberty, ultimately, at the end of the day, that has made always made America um, at both an institutional level in terms of like how our constitution is constructed um, and at a cultural level in terms of what is it that makes the American people who we are and what we are and different from people elsewhere, it has always been these things. This is what, you know, I mean, universally, we've always, and through, through history, we've always identified as the thing that makes us exceptional. And so those are the things that I, I want to, um, you know, I want to protect and I, I want to sustain. And I think that when you actually start listening to what the new nationalists are calling for, again, policy-wise, it's almost you know, almost without exception, things that would undermine all of those commitments and those values. How is this tied to conservatism in a more general sort of philosophical sense? Because the thing that strikes me as fascinating about this movement is, historically speaking, for or for a few decades at least, many libertarians have felt closer to conservatives or Republicans ideologically. But there's always been an idea that conservatism is very different from libertarianism and its own type of collectivism. And you start, you kind of see some of this, I call it like national greatness conservatism, where some of these people, maybe not Rich Lowry so much, but some of the people that we've been kind of referring to obliquely are really into policies. First of all, they hate libertarians. They also think libertarianism. <laughs> yes. And they, they also think that the world is libertarian or something like that. Uh, but that, that they're really drawing a line between the, any old alliance that might've existed between libertarians and conservatives and saying, no, we're a different type of collectivist. Yeah. I think this is a real departure <laughs> from at least the conservatism that we've seen for the last few decades, if not the last, you know, century or, or close to it. Um, I, I quote in my article um, Hayek's famous essay, Why I'm Not a Conservative, in which he says, you know, what in Europe was called liberalism was here in the United States, the common tradition on which the American polity had been built. In other words, conservatives were trying to conserve the thing that in Europe was called liberalism. So even conservatives in America were were classical liberals. Um, there's also a, a great quote from H.G. Uh, Wells, which he basically said the same thing. All Americans are, from the English point of view, liberals of one sort or another. Um, so, so I think, and, and you know, even more more recent history, um, it, since the sort of Reagan fusionist Reagan synthesis in the decades since Ronald Reagan, you know, rose to power. Um, the idea of conservatives being committed to individual liberty, personal responsibility, free markets and free trade is just, I mean, this is just standard fare. There's been not a lot of controversy around that. And this is, again, like you said, not necessarily Lowry, but many of the other nationalists that he is sort of, I think, holding water for. Um, they're, it's, a, it's an explicit rejection of that. They would say things like, something along the lines of, you know, we tried that classical liberalism thing and it isn't working for us. So it's time to try something else. Yeah. It's news to me on so many things, but, but, but so how is this, what sort so some of these other people, cause so, so Lowry did write a book, um, but I, I agree with you that he may not be the biggest problem in terms of policy proposals, but what, what kind of stuff do we see from some of these other people who are embracing the term nationalism? Yeah. I think um, the best illustration of that is, 
is to look back at last summer's National Conservatism Conference that was held here in D.C. I think, Erin, you and I were probably both there for that because um, I think we talked about that once before. Um, and so you had this two or three day conference in D.C. with a bunch of academics and thought leaders and, um, you know, Bolton and Hawley. And, and so just like sort of thought leaders on the on the political right who have fallen into this uh, nationalist conservative camp. And they they, you know, one after another got up on stage and and outlined the agenda that they have, the things that they think we need as a country. And those things have to do with closing the border, um, drastically restricting immigration, um, moving away from global free trade and globalism, lots of government expenditures to sort of what what they call an industrial policy to sort of prop up um, American, the, the American manufacturing sector and help our workers and our producers and our companies to outcompete the foreign companies by whether that's through subsidies or investments um, in infrastructure or preferential tax breaks, also through punitive taxation and other sort of punitive measures that would say, hey, if you company, American company, open up factory in Mexico instead of in New Mexico, we will punish you in some way. Um, there's a lot of that that they're talking about. Tariffs, of course, is the obvious, you know, sort of protectionist um, archetypal protectionist measure. Um, they also talked about, uh, there's a lot of this conversation, which I, I don't know that I necessarily was expecting going in, that was just straight up um, big government social conservatism, uh, sort of like a, a, a desire and a defense of using the heavy hand of the state, including the federal government, to impose and enforce conservative um, moral sort of beliefs, to, to reorient the country to Judeo-Christian values, to try to make people behave in a more moral way. The idea was is that we like lost sight of how to be a moral people, and we need, we need the government to get us back on track. So the subsequent debate that we've had a little more recently over banning pornography is a great example of this, but there are, there are many, and it also ties back into, as you can probably tell, into the, the great uh, Amari French debate of 2019. So, um, the, you know, what the question of whether we should use government to try to make people be moral um, and make different choices, um, that that is really which I which I think I mean, I would characterize that quite clear, clearly as a schism over a schism along the lines of liberalism and classical liberalism. And whether you're, so you have either you're on the side as David French and I am and probably almost everyone probably listening to this podcast on the liberal side and or you're on the Amari um the sort of J.D. Vance, the Tucker Carlson increasingly side that says we should we should have a much more robust uh, government and, and individual liberty and individual rights are are less important and ought to be subsumed to that sort of common good. I, I guess I'm curious to nail down who the constituency is for this, um, like who who they're speaking to and who it is outside of. So so bracket the the. Um, nationalist intellectuals along the coast who are writing these books and having these conferences, they they purport to be speaking for real Americans. And who are those who are those real Americans? Is it, you know, is it the working class um uniformly? Is it the is it religious Americans who feel abandoned by a secularizing country? And then to add on to that question and tying it back to the the shift in cultural values and and the imagined threat to a real America, are the constituencies that they are speaking to or claim to be speaking for, are they constituencies that at one point, I guess, were the real America? 
and now aren't just demographically based on opinion data and so on um or have they always kind of been a minority and then for whatever reason now just feel more threatened than they used to i think they would say it's a little bit of all those demographic groups that you just described um if you ask them who are they speaking for and the way they tend to talk about the that you know category of people is that these are the left behind these are the people that as as we have rushed into the 21st century and into modernity um, and into a sort of globally integrated economy and all, all of that, um, these are the people who have been left behind. And so um, the the archetype is the person in I don't know Scranton or or, or Flint, Michigan, or whatever. Who some, somebody who's um, who they would say. 50 years ago, you could support, comfortably support a family on a single income and live a good life and, you know, be safe and secure and, you know, economically and um, materially and also, you know, just in terms of health and safety and sort of um, safe from being safe from external threats and all that. And they would say it's it's increasingly impossible for your for an average, you know, working class American to to do that. For, for even for anybody to support a family on a single income. That, that's a talking point you hear a lot from the sort of Orrin Cass is a, one of the main names who's been pushing this um, line. So yeah, I think they would say we are representing the people who have been left behind, the working class, the real Americans, uh, you know, not on the two coasts, not in the big cities, but real, real Americans. Um, I, I think it's not as co- coherent a... Um, and then I... So to, to set back also, I also think that they are in many ways representing, like you said, the sort of more more religious traditionalist types. Um, and I actually, again, to give them credit where I think they're right, before telling them the many, many ways I think they're wrong, um, I do think there was a lot of overreach uh, during the Obama years, especially in terms of people in power and people, the cultural elites and the political elites at that time, um, who were all on the left, the political left, I think there was a lot of abuse of their power and a lot of overreach in, in saying, well, we've moved past the time when it was acceptable, for example, to believe that marriage is one man and one woman. And so it's not enough to um, legalize gay marriage in this country. It's not enough to legalize gay marriage in your state. We have to do it at the national level. And then we have to go further and we have to punish anybody who does not want to provide their services for a gay wedding. And we have to punish any school that won't hire, you know, a Catholic school that doesn't want to hire um, a man who's married to another man. We have to punish Catholic hospitals that don't do abortions, right? Or um, or ge- um, gender confirmation therapy or surgery. We have to punish anybody who isn't coming along with the sort of cultural cultural norms that we have decided are you know ought to be the baseline. And so I think there is a reaction among people who are like, "Hey, whoa! Like this is absurd. You don't get to tell us how to live." We thought we lived in a country where where we had rights too, and where we had a First Amendment, among other things. Um, so I think that this is this is a backlash. This isn't entirely out of again. They're not making this up. Um, I believe they're reacting to real phenomena. I, I think that though that when you know when when you argue against somebody else's illiberalism by becoming more illiberal yourself, you are definitely making the problem worse, not better. I guess that's what I would begin by saying. It's also interesting because you talk about the 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 people left behind the two income thing, and it also sounds a lot like Elizabeth Warren. I mean, you listen to some of these from both sides, and you start thinking that there's not much difference between them anymore, except for what thing they are concerned that collectively we have to do. Yeah, well, I think it's no it's no accident um, that 
Fox News' Tucker Carlson has multiple times on his show during his monologues, like basically called upon his conservative viewers to um, support or to demand that their party adopt a plan like Elizabeth Warren's quote, economic patriotism plan, her agenda. Uh, so, so yes, there's a, a total convergence. I, I think of it in terms of like the, the when the left and the right both um, sort of lose their minds or move so far out to the fringes and, and abandon you know, the classical liberal values that have in the past always anchored us as a society, when they abandon those so completely, they move so far in their respective directions to left and right that they end up coming back around and becoming kind of indistinguishable from each other. Setting aside for a moment the the particular policy preferences that the nationalists have, and as as you pointed out, there's a there's a spectrum, even if on the whole most of them seem to be the kinds of things that would be at least somewhat troubling for libertarians. Um, the the underlying attitudes of nationalism. What's the what's the big deal? Like, what's the threat here? Um, I mean, maybe. The, the worst that happens is they do protect American identity or they do get, you know, some more some more manufacturing jobs. Um, like what's what's the real danger of these nationalist attitudes? Well, I, I think there's a lot of dangers um, just in terms of sort of empirical, the likely empirical react uh, results if they were to get their way and we were to see a sort of Elizabeth Warren style or. Um, or, you know, the nationalist, conservative nationalist style um, economic agenda be implemented, I think it would wreak absolute havoc on um, on the American economy, on the global economy. Now, this is an awkward moment for us to be having this conversation. I don't know when this is going to be released, actually. but uh, you know, A couple of weeks, but it will still be coronavirus. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're right now... We're recording this on March 18th. Right. It's um, coronavirus, basically lockdown in D.C. Um, most people are not out, out and about the... American economy is sort of grinding to um, a halt in a way that is quite troubling um, and is going to have a lot of you know ripple ripple effects that will be painful for a lot of people and I, I don't want to um, minimize that. I think what we would see in you know given the sort of economic agenda that, that these folks are calling for, if we were to you know abstract away from coronavirus, even in a totally otherwise healthy economy, you start passing major tariffs, you start, raising taxes and, you know, handing out subsidies to favored firms and punishing firms that make business decisions that you in Washington do not like, um, you, you get bad outcomes. You break the sort of economy that has been the engine of economic growth and material flourishing um, for the last 50, 100, 200 years. We talk a lot about this as libertarians. I think it's absolutely true. This, the miracle of economic growth that we have seen in the modern age by mostly as to you know to the to the greatest extent possible, getting out of the way and letting the market work, letting prices work, letting the markets work, letting people make investments and and sort of chase down their their dreams um, and pursue what they think is in their own interests has it works it, and it has led to again sort of um, pre coronavirus at least one of the greatest you know, the greatest, actually, like the greatest sort of material well-being that any society has ever known in the history of man, you know, humankind. So I, I don't, I would be very, very nervous about the actual, like, concrete effects on human well-being that we would see here and abroad, uh, both. I, I don't think it's the case that you can just, I'm, I'm not just arguing that it's wrong to sacrifice foreigners in order to protect Amer Americans, although I do 
believe that. And I'm quite horrified when people like Rich Lowry say things like, well, even if, you know, global capitalism lifts hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in China, it's not worth it if, if like the, it leads to a crisis here or if it leads to, you know, an unemployment crisis here. I'm deeply disturbed by that way of thinking, to be honest with you. But that's not even what I'm arguing. I'm saying it would actually hurt people here as well, as it, it always does when we try protectionism. Do you see any – the thing that strikes me when we get to, say, Tucker Carlson, we mentioned, looking for a principled limit on what makes this conservative in any way or what's 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 the principled limit? I mean, is there anything – I mean, Tucker Carlson a while back was considering well, – doing a segment on banning smartphones from people – from kids under 14 uh, just because if you see a problem, you say, okay, well, I see a problem. The government – I no longer have any – principles about parental rights or parental responsibility, individual rights are just going to have the government fix that problem. It seems at the end of that, that it's hard to say what what is the philosophy that they're actually espousing if it's not limited by a conception of the moral limits of the state. Yeah, I think probably, I mean, again, it would probably depend who you talk to, but I think a lot of them would say, well, we're do, we, we are pragmatists and we think that we have tried this classical liberal liberalism thing and it hasn't led to the outcomes we wanted and so we were we are willing to try other things until we get the outcomes we want so they would say you know it's a, it's a sort of the proof of the pudding is in the eating kind of argument i think that you know we'll know that this that we that we've the you know that the policies were good policies because they will lead to good outcomes and of course i i disagree strongly with their assumption that they will lead to good outcomes but um but they, I, it's less, it's a less principled argument or a less abstract or um, moral case that they're making. I think um, almost, te- almost technocratic. Yeah, like, in a way. I mean, yeah. Like show me, you know, flourishing data. It's, it's a, the other point that strikes me is something I've said about conservatives for a while, even before this this movement started. I was open question of how much was it, you know, hidden back back before Trump, let's say. But but the question of like, so conservatives have often complain about public schools for quite a while. But do conservatives, especially these type of nationalist conservatives, do they actually disagree with public schools in principle? Or do they disagree with public schools that they don't run? Because that's what national greatness requires, a specific type of educational philosophy even. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I guess... It depends on the conservative, I guess. Sure, sure. Yeah. But but they're at the, even the education, which again, they've been allies to some extent, on school choice might have been mostly about the fact that they thought the left was running the school system. Right. They wanted a sort of right of, of exit uh, that they didn't have at that time. But if they could if they could be in control, then they would be happy to sort of deny the right of exit to others. And I think this this brings up another troubling avenue that this can all take, which is so Stephanie, you said, you know, one of the problems with their policy proposals is that the proposals won't actually lead to the the good outcomes that they want, you know, so slowing economic, if they result in like catastrophically slowing economic growth, that won't actually make things better for anyone, including their constituents and so on. But, but it seems like too, that we can say that for a lot of Americans, the, the quote unquote, good things that they want to achieve aren't actually seen as good things. Like there's, there's fundamental disagreement between people about the goodness of these desired Ends. And so the more, like, say, the more socially conservative parts of it, the, you know, like, we wish that gays didn't feel as free to express themselves or live the kind of lives that they want to. We, you know, we don't like, we want to go back, say, to like 
when more women worked in the home and the husband was out there as the only breadwinner and we had the the leave it to beaver set up um or were kind of upset about uh foreign born americans or second generation immigrants or whatever you know living out the kinds of lives they want because it conflicts with my preferences like those sorts of aims even if their policies could achieve them we don't necessarily want them to achieve them and in fact like the majority of americans wouldn't want them to achieve them and so i think that's that's one of the things that I notice in in the conversations about nationalism from the nationalists is they speak as if the like the halcyon days that they long for were in fact good for everyone when we have real reason to believe that for a great number of Americans they weren't good at all um and that in fact the very things that the nationalists thinks made them good made them bad for a great number of Americans. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I, I end up going there a lot when I'm discussing, you know, I'm Catholic, I'm sort of Reason Magazine's resident Roman Catholic. Um I when I'm when I'm sort of going up against my my fellow Catholics who are more in the quasi integralist camp, the the folks like Sorbamari who think we need a government that will again reorient society toward the common good. My point is, well toward your conception of the common good, but not everyone shares that conception. And by the way, I mean, not only do, does like the left and the right not agree, but even among conservative Christians, like Catholics and Protestants don't agree necessarily, right? Um, and 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 we we Catholics, we're a minority of the population. We're 23% of the population in America, maybe. So any, any attempt to um, orient society, to, you know, to be more in alignment with our conception of the common good, it would I, I make the case that is literally that is literally the minority imposing its moral views on the majority by force, which is by definition tyranny. So I think very often that the, this um, this argument, especially when it comes down to the the social conservative um, components of it, fall into the same trap. Um, and also on on immigration, even I mean. I I'm very much um, an expansive pro-immigration person. Um, I have arguments that would go beyond just what public opinion polls say on this, but it's it's sort of reassuring and gratifying to know that most Americans do think they agree with me that immigrants are by and large um, a sort of a net positive on our society, economically, culturally. We are again, we are a country that is sort of um, characterized by our our openness and our diversity and our pluralism and our um, our just sort of desire um, and an affinity for new experiences and and that sort of thing. So it's not like there's some some like tiny cabal of libertarians in Washington D.C. that are imposing our you know worldview on the rest of the country. Like in many of these cases where the where the uh, conservative nationalists are pushing for change, they're the minority that, 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 uh, that wants to, you know, overrule the majority, which is, is quite anti-democratic. And again, it's not all about democracy for me. I think sometimes, often the, the sort of masses are wrong, but in this case, they have to kind of defend why, why they should have that right. One thing we haven't even mentioned is something that, uh, our colleague Alex Narasta talks about a bunch, which is, is it right to even call America a nation? Yeah. The definitional questions are really, really like prickly, I think, when it comes to this, because none of the none of these words, um, they, they just don't have widely accepted uh, definitions that like that people just instinctively understand. So I, I, uh, I totally 
a, a sort of um, abstract or academic conversation. I think it's interesting to talk about, and there's an interesting argument that that we're not a nation in the traditional sense. We are certainly not one ethnicity, you know, a nation, one single nationality in the sense of being one ethnicity, or, you know, one people united by um, religion, ethnicity, and language. Um, I mean, we, yeah, but, but um, I also can see how having these kinds of conversations and harping on a point like, well, we're not really a nation at all. This is actually the kind of thing that, that where we, we're now no longer really speaking to the average American where he or she is, because they think we are a nation and we're a wonderful nation and a nation that they're proud to be a part of. And so um, I, I just, I, I don't know that fighting that battle is a, is a one that's worth sort of, I mean, it doesn't seem worth dying on that hill to me. Well, maybe rather than quibbling over semantics, which I agree, it can sound like you are doing that in a, in a debate that it's sort of like tomato, tomato, but it's to say that we're a country with like with like multiple made up of multiple states with multiple sovereigns, and like in many important ways, the point of America was that we we can't really be compared. Like the great thing about America is that is that you can talk about like the Serbian people as a nation who have different times have had a country or been part of another country um, or have had their own country, but saying that uh, that's very different than America. I think that's that's more than quibbling over def- like you know semantics and definitions. Sure, sure, it is. It just again, it's a little. It's just it's a tough question because is there a way that we could argue that we are a nation or you know a a single people, a, a people, a nation in that sense, um, but just defined in a different way or understood in a different way, characterized by different things than you might historically, especially from like a European lens, have thought. Um, maybe there is like we are a people who you know, who, again, who are, who are characterized by those, those, those classical liberal, um, values and, and norms and a love of those institutions and uh, a belief in those institutions and values. And, um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know what's to be gained by, by, by sort of categorically denying that that's a possible way to get to a nation. Um, it's not, you know, again, it's not the historical, European way of getting there, but is it? Could we still be a nation? Maybe I, I just don't. I don't know. It yeah, I see. Yeah. yeah. This this rejection of liberalism, not in the the leftist sense, but in the kind of classical liberalism of the American founding sense, that is common, especially with this new breed of intellectual nationalists. Does that represent? So you, we you mentioned earlier that. Um, Conservatives, like conservative parties, the Republican Party used to be much more pro-liberalism in this sense, like free trade and openness and so on, limited government, and that the the new nationalists are decidedly not. They're much more collectivist. Um, Does that represent a change in the broader belief system of conservatism in the United States, Um, or is this – has there always been this strain of these this kind of nationalism, collectivist nationalism, and these guys are just now more vocal? So I guess another way to answer the question is, is this as a as an ideology, is it growing in number of adherents now, or is it just louder than it used to be? <laughs> uh, I do think that oh, well, so I think it's sort of like 
yes to all those questions, right? Um, there always was a sort of strain of this, even among conservatives. There's no doubt about that. Um, it didn't, it didn't come out of nowhere. Um, I think it is growing. I think there have been a lot of people who have full on flip flopped and Tucker, Car Tucker Carlson is a great vivid example of that. He used to be essentially a libertarian. So th that is happening. I think a lot of it too is, um, not, again, not necessarily as much among the, the leaders of the movement, but among the, the people more broadly among conservatives, you know, out there in the real world. A lot of it too, I think is not, it's mostly, I think that partisanship is so strong. Um, evidence increase, you know, increasingly over time, we have more and more studies that show that uh, partisan affiliation is one of the strongest sort of identify, uh, identity markers that we have in, in our society. And so I think what you have, a lot of what you have going on here is you have people who are on team Donald Trump and Donald Trump says these things. And so they're going to twist themselves into whatever knots they have to in order to, you know, find a way to defend the things that he does and says, um, because that, because he's on their team and he represents people like me and he's looking out for people like me and loyalty demands that I, that I do that. And so that were they, were they like, um, long time, you know, voices in the wilderness crying out for a more illiberal conservatism? No. Have they all, have they changed their minds? Kind of, but mostly I think that they're not particularly uh, wedded to the positions they're holding now either. It's much more about being uh, a sort of, um, uh, sort of de demonstrating their loyalty to the team to the t you know i'm a team player i i can find a way to to defend my side and my guy well that that raises the question of how much of this represents a possible new realignment going forward with the and of course we mentioned the national conservatism conference where that was explicitly the purpose for the sort of trump movement to continue after trump with an intellectual backing and that, and then that, of course, if that does, if this does end up becoming basically the new faiths of the Republican Party, where does that leave libertarians, or even actually just liberals in the in the true sense of the word? That's a great question. Um, the my in my optimistic moments, I hope that both the left and the right are getting far out uh, beyond their bases. So I don't think your average Democratic voter. I mean, we've, we've seen this now just in the most recent. Um, primaries, democratic primaries. I don't think the average democratic voter, I've been saying this for a while, is a socialist. Um, and I don't think that your, I hope that your average Republican voter is not a nationalist, right? Or, or a sort of, um, Catholic integralist type <laughs> who wants to seize the control of government in order to, you know, ban blasphemy and pornography and, you know, enforce blue laws and whatnot. I don't find, I don't think that the center of gravity of our electorate is as far out as these voices on both left and right are right now. And so I'm hoping, again, in my optimistic moments, I hope that because they're the fringes of the parties and the two sort of intellectual movements are moving so far out to the, to the fringes that um, it will start to make us actually the liberals, the true liberals start to look like sane to people because we're actually now closer to where they are. I hope I, I would really like for this to happen. I don't, I'm not predicting that that's the case, but I'm hopeful that that might be the case or that at the very least there will be some sort of backlash. Like, you know, now that we have seen that Bernie Sanders and the, and the Bernie Sanders coalition does not have what it takes to win the democratic nomination in 2020, you know, is there going to have to be a realignment on, on the left now where they sort of, they got too far out in front of their base and they have to come, you know, pull it back. And could we then, you know, maybe 
in a few years in the future, depending on what happens with Donald Trump, see the same thing on the right. I hope so. I hope so. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I hope so. I, I wonder too how much this ties in with uh, demographic trends that, you know, one of the, the more interesting changes that's happened, not just in the U.S., but globally over the last hundred plus years is increasing urbanization, that people are leaving the countryside for the cities. And that trend is is moving quickly and does not seem to be slowing down anytime soon. Um, and that it feels like one way to look at the nationalism, um, particularly in its like set aside kind of um, Bernie Sanders style leftist progressivism and look more at the like openness to you know, cosmopolitanism, um, compare it to cosmopolitanism, is that cities tend to be cosmopolitan and that people who live in cities tend to be comfortable with immigrants, um, much more open to new experiences. They're almost necessarily more comfortable with economic dynamism because cities are, you know, the epicenters of economic dynamism. And, and that then people in the countryside are, um, tend to be the more anti-immigrant, the the more nationalist, and that these these differences in opinions among the groups are becoming more stark as people move out of the countryside and into the cities. The ones who are are cosmopolitan are the ones who leave. Um, and and so I can imagine that the this realignment to the extent that the nationalism, this new nationalism has any staying power is that it has staying power in in the rural areas, um, in the the lower population density places, um, and and the, I guess the hopeful vision is that the cities that cosmopolitanism is at least more compatible with libertarianism and liberalism than the the nationalist collectivism is. That's not to say that everyone in the cities is a libertarian because they have a lot of, <laughs> they have a lot of say, yeah. left left political views. But you know, if you're gonna pick if you're gonna pick one of them that you know there's there's more overlap with, uh, especially now that the you know the American right has abandoned most of the the free market principles that it seemed to once hold. Um, but if that's the realignment, it feels like just based on ongoing demographic trends, the cosmopolitans kind of win out. And and the message that libertarians have of of openness um, and dynamism is one that's certainly much more appealing to them than it is to is to the nationalists. And so maybe maybe that's how we can fit in, and we can we can kind of find more of a home, at least closer to the cosmopolitans, and just help them to check their their worst economic urges. I think it's possible. I, I tend to, I'm like a little bit reluctant to um, make sweeping predictions about how, um, you know, whether the, whether that realignment is happening, whether it will continue, you know, how, how markets solve problems is so hard to, to guess at in advance. And I could tell, I think, a plausible, just to play devil's advocate, like a plausible story for why I think actually we might move why that trend may be reversed or, um, you know, we may move in a different direction. For example, like right now, as we are, we are currently in four different rooms as we're recording this podcast, there is a sort of greater and greater ability to uh, work remotely or, or telecommute and do jobs, many, many, many jobs from anywhere. Um, there are a lot of 
policies, urban policy in big cities, which tend to be controlled by left of center governments, um, are doing basically everything that you could possibly imagine if your goal was to drive up the, pro- the cost of living and the cost of housing, especially in those places. Um, there's You have these uh, people who joke about things like the U-Haul index, right? Like it's much cheaper if you want to... Um, it's much more expensive if you want to rent a U-Haul and drive it from California to Texas because lots of people are doing that right now because it's it's so much cheaper to live in Texas and so much more expensive to live in California. And so you, I could tell a story where actually in the future we are going to de-urbanize. Um, we're going to, you know, go people are going to be able to go back and live closer to their families um, because you can work from anywhere and because we have such a great uh, communications and transportation sort of network set up that, that that's possible. And um, so I don't know, maybe maybe we're going to continue in the direction we've been going and urbanization is the future. And I live in downtown Washington, D.C., and I love it. Um, so I'm not complaining about that outcome, but I'm not sure that that's, that's necessarily what's going to happen. And so I'm not definitely I'm not going to bank on it or plus I've just been wrong every time I've made a prediction <laughs> having to do it with politics in the last four years. So I'm kind of burned by that. <laughs> Well, I, I think I, I'm more on the pessimistic side too. I mean, Eric gave a plausible story, but as we see that these cities seem to breed a type of uh, nimbyism and, and its own type of collectivism, both left and right, and then you have the phenomenon of Bernie, but even more AOC and the kind of p- positions that she represents for urban cosmopolitans where she well she might not be as anti-immigrant as bernie is but but bernie many of the policies that bernie has he's had to clamp down on his anti-trade anti-immigrant rhetoric and all the kind of stuff that he would align with people like Orrin Cass to some extent. So again, it leaves us in this weird place. So I've said for a while, I'm not actually sure about the age because AOC may not be old enough to run for president, but um, in 2024, if it's Josh Hawley versus AOC, uh, who do we vote for? <laughs> if we have, like, where, where are libertarians in that? Uh, I mean, Josh Hawley is, is terrifyingly, uh, presidential and well-spoken and Harvard law and, and absolutely terrifying in terms of the policies that he sets forward for national greatness. Right. He's an authoritarian. Yeah. So, so where, so we, yeah, where, where do libertarians where in that, in that hypothetical election? And if I write about this, we're going to come back four years from now, we'll share this again. and be like, wow, Trevor called our great national nightmare, but yeah, where, <laughs> where, where do we fit into the Holly versus AOC election? I don't know. So, so a minute ago, I was talking about how how on my optimistic days, I hope that we start to look good to the average voter. And you know what you just outlined is what, how I feel on my pessimistic days, which is I don't see. <laughs> okay, okay. I don't know how we get out of this. Um, I guess, but actually, the way that I, the only way forward that I can think of, and so the one that I'm personally pursuing, and I'm not saying that I'm going to be successful, but um, rather than thinking in terms of um, geographic realignment or anything like that, is I think what we need is to rediscover the uh, the importance of a belief in sort of universal human dignity. Um, I think that's what's missing right now on all sides because you have this sort of toxic political environment, the tribalism of left and right, you know, R and D, red and blue, where the other side isn't just, you know, mistaken or misguided, but they're like evil and deserve to be, you know, literally punched on the street. Um, if not worse, you know, if not, if not something even worse than that. Uh, you also have, I think this this undergirds the sort of policies on both sides. You have class warfare on the left and you have an us versus them sort of obsession with 
purity and keeping out the outsiders and, you know, it's just a very us versus them way of looking at things happening with these nationalists on the right. And so what's missing in, in all of these cases, it seems to me, is a belief that like other humans are have just as much dignity as I have, that we're created equal, you know, go back to our founding documents, go back to the early, you know, for me, let me just like plug for Catholicism and Christianity, like go back to the sort of foundational beliefs of Christianity. These are the things that we're supposed to believe and I think we've lost them and, and I think that's a huge part of the problem. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.